Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The award-winning Atlanta-based artist Pam Longobardi transforms plastic debris from oceans into eerily beautiful sculptures. Her Drifters project involves working collaboratively with communities all around the globe, cleaning beaches and removing tens of thousands of pounds of plastic from the environment, then turning them into thought-provoking works of art, revealing the effects of global consumption on the natural world. Later this hour, Pam Longabardi will tell us about her new book, Ocean Gleaning, which details her research as well as her art. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words today, featuring the band Starbenders. First, activism brings to mind many images, silent protesters, sitting in at a whites-only restaurant demanding equal rights, high school students leading a movement for gun control, running for Congress to overhaul discriminatory policies, the new play, Square Blues, having its world premiere at Horizon Theater, follows three generations of a Southern Black family, each with its own approach to activism. The playwright, Shay Youngblood, and director Tom Jones join me now via Zoom to talk about the play. Welcome to City Lights. Uh, thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. I, I echo that. And from here on out, whatever Shay says. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom, I'm going to get you. <laughs> Shay, what inspired you to write this play? I was traveling on a train from New York City to Providence, Rhode Island, where I was studying with the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Paula Vogel. I was um, in graduate school at Brown University. I was sitting on the train looking around. I picked up a copy of the New York Times 
that someone had abandoned. This was in, in 1992. I looked at several articles and I, I was just astounded by the racism that I saw in several of those articles. I looked around me on the train to see if anyone else had read these articles and were just as outraged as I was. And in that moment, I created the character Square Blues, a man who has been living with racism, oppression, dealing with all kinds of obstacles in his life because of his race. And what is he gonna do about it? He's angry, but what is he gonna do about it? That was the genesis of the play, seeing these baseball players with price tags hanging off around their necks as if they were auctioning off it was the auction block all over again. Mm. And this character has been with you then for 30 years? Yes, indeed. When I wrote this play, it was my thesis play. You know, there are, there's a family of activists. So the daughter, she is protesting everything. Uh, she's very young and she is out in the streets protesting. But then the, the fight gets very personal for her. Her father is all about uh, reparations. And he's not necessarily just wanting a check. He wants radical change, but his, his method is very different from his daughter, who is, you know, was the act up generation. They were out being very theatrical with their protest. And the grandmother, Blue's mother, um, she was married to a Jewish man, actually a sort of underground married to him because it was illegal at that time. And it was illegal for blacks and whites to marry until 1967. So this, this family comes together to figure out how can they support each other in their different generations of activism. So in thinking about your train ride in 1992 and the disgusting articles, the references to racism you saw in the Times, was this right after Rodney King's brutal treatment by the Allies? Yeah. It was definitely around that time. And as I said, I was angry about a lot of things and I was able to channel some of that anger into this character. And unfortunately, this play is timeless and has a lot of parallels to what was happening then. There was, there was a lot of AIDS and HIV activism at that time. You know, people weren't talking about reparations at that time. And we move forward and the conversation is all about reparations, all about equity and diversity and Black Lives Matters. The activists are quite fearless. And actually, the Supreme Court is uh, maybe on the verge of deciding whether Blacks and whites can marry or stay married, I guess. Mm. And it's, it's unfortunate that it's that timeless. But at the time, the producer mentioned to me, I took the play to her and she said, oh, my God, there's just there's too much sex in it. <laughs> this is not going to fly. <laughs> and you see more than that on uh, HBO today and, and on television. But at the time, it's, it seems rather tame now when I look at it. But at the time, it was very provocative. And I had a lot of readings and workshops of this play, but nobody would actually produce it. It has a lot of humor in it because it, it, it is a difficult, uh, I'm talking about difficult subjects, but I, there's a lot of humor and sensuality and, and a lot of love in this play. So, I'm intrigued with the name of the grandmother, Odessa. Yes. Rodney yes. King's mother was named Odessa. It may well have found its way into the play in that way. When I'm writing, I am really observing life and I'm pulling from it, my own life and life around me. And so it would be no surprise that I might've pulled that from her name, but also just the other day, Russia attacked Odessa, the city of Odessa in the Ukraine. 
And so there are a lot of moments like that in this play over that have stood over time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that, that would be no surprise if that were in my consciousness at that time. Again, it has been 30 years since I wrote this play, but I was also able to, thankfully, I was able to take notes, listen to this play again, hear it in a different way in this current moment. And with the help of the cast, the director, the producers, I was able to, you know, look at it through a different lens through this current moment. Please, Tom, feel free to join in here as well. Shay has mentioned a few names. Would you introduce us to the main characters in the play? I think it really is an ensemble piece, you know, and I think what Shay's done really, really very poignantly and wonderfully well is not put the piece on the shoulders of anyone because it really is about those three generations of activists. So you have Square Blue, Square Meshach Blue, you have Odessa Blue, you have Lola, who is the love interest of the daughter and granddaughter, Karma Blue, and then you have Tuesday, who is, in fact, the love interest of Square Blue, the son. And in that sense, I think you really deal with, really deal with three generations of, of activist artists who have to kind of reconcile what activism means in their own terms and in their own time. And how does each generation differ in that regard? You know, what, what is striking is that they don't really, when, when, once you un, you know, kind of peel back the layers, that each generation really does take on the same strategy, the same methodology, whether it's sit-in, whether it's protest, whether it's civil disobedience, because what, what each generation is doing is flying in the face of laws that are unjust. As, as Martin King alluded to, that it is perfectly righteous and just for those to protest in whatever way, shape, or form they need to, to unseat and undo unjust laws. And I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing. So I think from one generation to the next, I think that's what's so beautifully poignant about the piece is that each generation, though they think they're different, begins to find that nexus that in fact they do at the point when things are most critical, at the point when you are most challenged in terms of your own sense of, of justice, that you begin to resemble and resort to the same kind of strategies and tactics that, that the generation that you, whose shoulders you stand on resorted to. So you see civil disobedience. It may look different, you know, it, it may be colored through a different lens, but at its core, it really is the same thing. You know, people who are beginning to work against those things that that at its core are, are about justice. Mm. There are famous Atlanta restaurants connected to the civil rights movement, Pascal's and Busy Bee Cafe, to name two. Shea was the Fifth Avenue Happy Cafe modeled after those institutions. Yes, definitely. Growing up in Columbus, Georgia, was very different than when I came here as a, as a student in the Atlanta University Center. And I knew, I knew about those places that were significant to the civil rights movement. And when I created this play, I wanted there to be a central place that was a respite, a haven, a sanctuary, and a place that supported the movement and supported, supported it in lots of different ways, financially, supported them by you know, offering up meals and, and a place where people could plan and strategize. Mm. So we've learned about the names of the people who make up this important ensemble piece. How does Square seek out financial reparations? Uh, Square is, um, he has learned about 
a tax law. There's like this loophole that, you know, a lawyer has told him that he can apply through the IRS for a, uh, a reparations tax credit. And he does, he applies for it and he and the IRS mistakenly sends him a check, a very large, almost $50,000, which would at that time have been the equivalent of 40 acres on a mule. And so that was very symbolic. And when he gets this check, he cashes it and he starts paying people's rent and getting people, bailing people out of jail, believing truly that this is the money for the people. And he wants to teach other people how to do this. And this was actually, that, that is historically accurate in that there were people who were attempting to do that, get this reparations tax credit. But of course, it's, uh, it was illegal and um, they, they, they come for him. And what kind of public art does the character karma create to bring attention to issues important to her? Well, she is fearless and she is, um, ACT UP was the model for some of her art actions. Uh, in the beginning, she is wants to save the whale. She wants to go to the Peace Corps. She is passionate about many things, homelessness in the city. They were, they were at the Imperial Hotel to highlight the plight of people who, you know, who don't have shelter. She is very theatrical. She ta- you know, takes a, a page from the book of ACT UP and is very theatrical in her protests because she thinks it will, will get a lot of attention and she's, she's ready, willing and able to go to jail for what she believes in. Hmm. Which include HIV, AIDS, LGBTQ rights, in addition to homelessness. Yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with playwright Shay Youngblood and director Tom Jones. Tom, you mentioned that ultimately each member of the generations of this family are alike in their protest and the activism, but how do they differ, especially in regard to Odessa, the grandmother? Well, I think each generation kind of contemplates and reconciles what are the obstacles that they're confronting, you know? And so in the 60s, you're confronting segregation. And what does that look like? You're confronting voting rights. You know, you're confronting a whole system of inequity. So I think her, as Shay alluded to, you know, what she did and what she and and her Jewish husband, underground husband Lewis did was create this, as you said, a sanctuary where public conversation could happen in the tradition of Pascal's and Mary Max Tea Room and all of those places and Lone Star Cafe in Birmingham and, and all of those places that around the country and particularly in the South became a repository of thought, became incubators for, for, for strategic action, became places where, you know, black and white activists would sit down together and begin to reconcile what's going on. That I think is, is, Different in one sense in terms of of Lola and Karma, the next generation, you know, two generations removed, Blue's daughter, and what she begins to say, okay, let's begin to almost put what that civil disobedience looks like on steroids. You know, let's go out and and parade, you know, uh, naked people in front of folks. Let's begin to put in the faces of folks what injustice looks like. And particularly because HIV AIDS, in the early 90s, late 80s, it was whispered. No one ever died in 1980s or early 90s from AIDS. They died from pneumonia, they died from cancer, they died from organ failure, but no one mentioned it. It was the scarlet letter, quote unquote, you know, of, of its time period. And so you had this great paranoia 
you have this kind of health pandemic and this great paranoia within communities trying to isolate it and marginalize it to, to certain communities. So to bring awareness and attention to what that is, there was an extreme nature to saying, you know, one, wake up, two, look at us, look at what the issues and you have to begin to identify and look at and give a name to the names and faces of people who are dying. What we did in particular in the black community was was deny the fact that the fastest growing population in demographic of AIDS was 18 to 35 year old African-American women, particularly because none of us spoke to what the virus was, how it impacted our community. So we all kind of buried our heads in the sand in order to get people to acknowledge and to be aware of what that injustice is, you have to, or at least a, a generation of folks said, we must be more extreme in the way in which we, we present ourselves, which is somewhat different from, to some degree, to the civil disobedience of the 1960s. But again, once you peel back that onion, what people did in Birmingham, what people did in Selma, what people did in Atlanta, what people did in Mississippi, in trying to uncover what that injustice looked like was also extreme in its own time. You know, the, the convenience of time makes it look as if it was much more tame than it was. When you stick fire hoses on people and German shepherd dogs, and when you're blowing up churches in 16th Street in, in Birmingham, that's an extreme response to trying to change the country. So you jettison 20, 30 years later to 1992 in Karma's generation, trying to bring awareness and age awareness to her community. It looks extreme. And yet now through the lens of 2022, we look back and say, Perhaps it wasn't as extreme as we begin to look at what the uprisings are in response to George Floyd. So each generation looks probably more extreme in its activism. And yet at its core, I think I doubled down on at its core, it really is strategically the same thing. Nostalgia and memory has a way of, of coloring things in a way that, uh, that you don't get what the immediate impact in its time. I remember living in that time through the 60s, fortunate enough, and seeing how violent you know, this country was in reaction to issues of wanting to reconcile its contradictions, killing young men and, and, and women at Kent State and Jackson State, the killing of George Jackson, the, the, the taking of Jonathan Jackson, the looking at, at Fred Hampton being shot in his bed, the sense of what happened with, with King and marches, what Bloody Sunday looked like, was an extreme response to people trying to right a wrong, inherently a wrong, and as, in a certain sense to make real, the promissory note, as King talked about, you know, that this country doubled down on, that it built its constitution and its, its fundamental promise to its people that all, all people are created equal. To fight for that engendered an extreme response. And it did in the 30s, it did in the 50s, it did in the 60s, it did in the 90s. And it is even in the latter part of the 21st century, as we looked at from George Floyd and really from Trayvon Martin to the present, we tend to look at those, those folks who protest as being reactionary as being violent, as being extremist. And in fact, they simply mirror generations of, folk, of activists whose shoulders they stand on. Yeah, and hopefully there will be reaction to injustice and the kind of horror you enumerated. I just wanted to speak to Tom's eloquence around the issues that are dealt with in this play. And that is why he was the perfect director to bring to this work. Um, I work alone by myself, thinking, you know, coming up with stories and ideas and characters, but they are they were just words on a page and ideas on a page until they come into the room with craftspeople who, you know, give the attention to detail to bringing this work to life. And so Thomas, I just wanna say, I appreciate you so very much for bringing all of yourself to this work and um, really giving it the opportunity to, to see light, to breathe and to have 
um, agency in this in this current moment. Oh, thank you. Well, you know what, trusting me with it was uh, I received that and I welcome that and I thank you for trusting me and trusting an amazing ensemble of actors who brought every resource, every part of themselves yes. to the process, who were truly generous in the way in which they gave of themselves in the midst of some, sometimes some, some daunting circumstances, <laughs> production circumstances that we all had to overcome. But um, in the midst of that, no one ever faltered, you know, and everyone remained committed. And I think it was, it's a testament to the work that, you know, as uh, I reunited with a friend who played Square Blue, an, an actor, Jay Jones, who I gave his first job to way back when I was running Jumanji mm. in the middle 90s, I think, and we had mm. worked for about 20 years. And it was like no time had passed at all. And he said, as soon as I read the play, I knew I wanted to do it because of its poignancy and because it's not a museum piece. It doesn't simply chronicle time 30 years ago, but in a certain sense, it reflects and reflects what is exactly, you know, the currency of the, uh, of the moment. Mm -hmm. it is as unfortunately, in that sense, is as poignant now as it was 30 years ago. Tom, the play is described as a comedy drama. How do you and your actors navigate humor with such difficult topics? Well, these are some, you know, these are comedy folk that, uh, that, <laughs> that will never run away from a joke. These, <laughs> nor, nor, nor will I. So f first of all, uh, there's just so much that, that Shay writes that is just absolutely funny, you know, not only on the page, but off. So it, it, that wasn't difficult. And I think in the tradition of particularly Black community, we have always learned that our sense of humor is in certain sense a shield and part of the armor we, we wear and use going into battle. And I think Shay captures that really, really, really well. So that wasn't that wasn't as hard. But also having you know people who who lean on kind of their comedy bones and instincts. So and I myself love comedy. <laughs> Not only that, but 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 having being you know um, kind of raised in the tradition of Dick Gregory and Mark Saul and and Richard Pryor at all going into the present of comedians who, in a certain sense, were political comics you know, who, much like D.L. Hughley, much like Chris Rock, you know, much like Dave Chappelle, that they begin to use humor in a way of navigating into some very, and burrowing into some very difficult issues to make you look at the world in a way that's, that's, that otherwise may be difficult to see. They help navigate you through that. And laughter disarms you so that you, in a certain sense, can hear things that you may initially be resistant to. But all of those comics were political. They were as as Jeanette Cole, the former president of Spelman's called Richard Pryor, was probably the country's, in his time, country's most foremost cultural anthropologist in a way in which he was able to, to take on issues and, and grave issues and understand the gravity of it, but at the same time deconstruct it in a way that you just found yourself laughing at it. And I think this play does that, you know, really wonderfully well in much the same way. So, Shay, how does it feel to have had this 30-year gestation? It, it feels affirming, and it also feels like the work is not done. I am glad that I that I took that journey. It was daunting at times, but I kept to it. When the producer at Horizons, Lisa Adler, came to me most recently, I returned to Atlanta after being away for a number of years. She said, "Do you have anything? You have anything new, or have anything else you want me to take a look at?" And I said, "Remember night in um, 2010 when you did a reading of Square Blues? Take a look at it again." And she did. 
and um, saw the value in bringing it to the stage now. So it really feels affirming and I'm continuing to do lots of different kinds of work. I think it must also give you a tremendous sense of validation that your thesis committee was wrong. <laughs> no, the thesis committee, they were they were good. They, they were encouraging. Oh. It's that producers wouldn't do the play. No, my, my, I was very much encouraged at Brown oh, good. to uh, explore all of myself, my political self, my sensual self, all of myself. What happened is that I got awards for it. I got grants for it. Andrew Smith praised it. Uh, Edward Albee praised Ooh. it. But no one would actually produce it because they were afraid they would lose funding at that time. And even now, people were afraid of losing subscribers and funding because of the provocative nature of the sensuality in the play, because of the, the issues that I was dealing with kind of straight on. So it's, it, it definitely got um, support from many areas. It's just that the producers could not see their way to actually mounting this production. So that is, it's really thrilling for me. And, and, and again, uh, Tom and the, the amazing ensemble cast has done an excellent job. I've seen it several times and I still marvel that uh, I just marvel because I, I put some, again, put some words on a page and put them on the table and, and they ran away with it. And, and it feels like they've taken it and made it something new and different and wonderful. And I, I'm glad to have been a part of this community. Playwright Shay Youngblood and director Tom Jones. Square Blues is on stage through August 21st at Horizon Theatre. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll talk with the artist whose practice transforms plastic debris from oceans into eerily beautiful sculptures. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. An estimated 14 million tons of plastic ends up in the ocean every year, affecting marine life, birds, food quality, human health, and contributing to climate change. Atlanta artist and Georgia State University art professor Pam Longabardi 
has been alerting us to this crisis through her artwork for over 15 years. Her new book, Ocean Gleaning, showcases her practice. And when the artist joined me via Zoom earlier this year, she explained what her organization, The Drifters Project, aims to accomplish. It's kind of an elastic entity that became, you know, a way to involve other people with this work. And it sort of shifted it from a solo process to more of a a social practice. So it ends up involving lots and lots of other people and collaborators and individuals who show up for cleanups and whatnot. And so it just has a lot of legs, I guess, that way. Yeah. Why did you feel that upcycling these discarded materials into art would be the best way to communicate the harmful effects of ocean pollution? Well, I really was just so stunned by by what this material looked like. It just had such an aura and a strange, you know, uncanny presence. And it just seemed like this is real. And this is something that has, you know, circumnavigated the globe, either through commerce or as a floating drifter. So it's come back changed from that experience. And it's a wholly different material. And that material has a kind of resonance because it's been acted upon by so many forces and beings. And so I really feel that, you know, these materials have a lot of power that are much beyond something that can be purchased and crafted into, you know, a a piece of artwork. After the world shut down in 2020 due to the pandemic, were you still able to clean up beaches or oceans? and create artwork? Well, I have a good stockpile (laughs) um, ready to go. So I wasn't as, you know, I wasn't out of material, let's put it that way. And I did do some local cleanups though. And I think that's what's really interesting about the pandemic is people discovered the worlds that are available right in their backyards. And I think the creatures that are usually hidden suddenly came out and engaged in spaces that were open at this point and they weren't full of human energy. Mm. So we started to notice all the creatures that live around us. I still delight in all the birds in my garden that I don't remember before the pandemic. Of course, there's more traffic now with many people having returned to sort of a normal life, but are you talking about birds and marine life? Yeah, yeah. I have people that are in contact with me from all over the world, and they were noticing in Costa Rica, you know, large cats were coming down from the higher mountains and just checking it out, you know. For once, it was quiet, I think, and they they really wanted to see what was different and they found space Wow! instead of, you know, it being full of uh, our energy. What a profound impact. Yeah, really. What have been some of the 
astonishing or shocking things you've found in the ocean? Well, it's hard to really describe them visually without seeing them because some of them are just, you know, a, a piece of plastic that's been chewed on. Let's start with that. I think that's a good place to start. So this plastic floating around in the ocean is being tested as a food source by all kinds of creatures. So one of the things that I find regularly are tooth marks all over pieces of plastic. And, you know, some of them are from enormous sharks. And a shark bite has a very particular triangular shape when it bites into something. Sometimes you can see the entire rim of the, the creature's mouth, and then you get an idea the size of it. I also have seen sea turtle bites. I've seen birds biting things. I've seen all kinds of other toothed fish, even grizzly bears. When we were in Alaska, we saw bear bites into the plastic. So that's one thing that is a really interesting and, and kind of eerie phenomenon. And then the things that are, are kind of transformed, you know, they started off as one thing, but then they become a different thing altogether. And maybe it's a symbolic kind of a form. Maybe it looks like a wave, or maybe it's something that even looks like the piece of a Star of David or a cross. You know, there's all kinds of symbols in this material. And Goodness. yeah, you know, part of what this new project involves is I've been studying and looking at this material for a long time and seeing all these messages in it. And I started to make these big compositions that we started to call them cartouches because they have a certain formality to them um, that is talking about signification and location and presence at these different sites. And so what I did was I kind of cast a wide net out and asked people all over the world that I was in contact with and some that I didn't know at all. I just found them through Instagram and whatever. And asked them to search for their own messages. And so all of these incredible things came back from that. Just phenomenal, thoughtful, beautiful, poetic words that people were moved to speak. Because I do think the ocean is, is actually communicating with us through this material. It's not inert anymore. It's been changed. And if we pay attention to that in a way and um, listen to it and read it, even forensically, you know, I think there's, there's information to be gathered that might be on the scientific side or might be completely on the poetic side, but it's a form of turning your attention toward something other. And that other is a big, I think, conscious entity that has agency and it is interacting with these objects and changing those objects and then displaying them back to us. Pam, how do you decide which pieces will become part of your art installations and what will be recycled? Well, there's kind of two types of materials that I have. I have a very big archive of things that are just, you know, they're sort of the oddities, the really strange things that are like nothing else you've ever seen. And there's a whole lot of those that are part of my book. And then there's another source of material that's just, maybe it's of a particular color or shape that I use in the larger compositions. So it's 
functioning first and foremost in those aesthetically. And then the secondary function of it is of course that you see what that object is and you think about your own interactions with similar types of objects and and therefore you know what happens to it after you're done with it you mentioned your book titled ocean gleaning would you tell us more about it yeah it's being published by fallline press and we have been working on it for a very long time it's been a year actually and um Bill Bowling and I had conversations about this several years ago, and it got kind of put on the back burner because of COVID and the pandemic and shutting everything down. But then when the timing came for it to be back on the table again, I had just been offered a solo exhibition in Naples, Florida at the Baker Museum, and it's a huge show. So it really speaks to the time we're in. Uh, did you know that the UN just had a consortium of 175 different countries sign a plastic treaty that will take responsibility for the plastic from the beginning of its life through the consumer usage of it and the end of the life too, and addresses microplastics and everything. It's enormous. It's such a huge event because I think um, myself and everyone else who's been working on this with this material and trying to push something forward in terms of social change, I mean, a very, very big step just happened. So that's amazing and something to really celebrate. Congratulations. I know you are as much an activist as artist. Did you help lobby for that? Well, I've helped in lots of different ways. I wasn't specifically involved in this treaty because it really was coming from the governments of these places. But Ah. yeah, it's all on the heels of lots and lots and lots of hard work by lots and lots and lots of people all over the world. And I think it kind of added up to a point where we could no longer pretend this wasn't happening. And the fact that governments have stepped up, I think that's the critical change that we just are experiencing right now. Interesting, as one enters a gallery to look at your work, from afar, we see how well-crafted they are and beautiful to admire. Get closer, and the viewer sees that the entire sculpture is made out of these cast-off plastic materials you found in the ocean, which obviously don't belong in the ocean. In that way, your art parallels the way we view the ocean as we look at it from afar. We don't necessarily see what's wrong. We don't. The pollution is not always visible, but close up, you see it's filled with debris. Is that parallel or metaphor intentional, Pam? I think it it actually is a shift in consciousness. I think there's been, through the entire industrial revolution, there's been a notion about the ocean as a surface, as something that is just a shallow reflection upon which the shipping industry moves. And one artist I really admire, Alan Sakula, he changed a lot of the way we started to think about that through his project that was photographing 
sort of the back end of the hidden parts of the shipping industry around the world. And those photographs are really phenomenal. And they really, you know, started a change from where in this sort of sense of modernity that, uh, you know, the ocean was not this surface upon which we moved, but it was in a vast ecosystem subsurface. And that's really where, you know, that kind of invisible part was always ignored in some ways. And so now that, you know, we're down under there and we see what's happening and we can really uh, study it and learn from it, then we see that, yeah, this is, this is actually the driving engine of the atmosphere on the planet. It moves our weather. It's so critical to the functioning of all the ecosystems on the planet. So it's in our best interest to really take care. Indeed. We hear such dispiriting things about recycling now. How much of an impact does recycling plastics and paper goods really have on the environment and the ocean in particular? Well, they uh, really have very different effectiveness, I guess we could say. And yeah, the problem with recycling is just the mass of it is not really recycled. Even after all the sorting and good intentions of many, many people, the plastic that gets recycled from that is about 9%. That's the estimate. So when a plastic producer is talking about recycling this bottle, it really, it's just a sort of shoving the responsibility onto the consumer instead of taking responsibility as the producer. And so what part of this bill addresses that um, the plastics treaty that just got signed in uh, the United Nations Environmental Program Conference is to have the recycling industry also stepped up, you know, and that it's going to have to be more transparent, that it can no longer make people fooled really into thinking that this is taking care of the problem because that's their marketing plan. So you can keep buying more plastic and not think about it. Mm. But this is wrong. Literally, they've been lying to people. So that's all coming out right now. What is your call to action for viewers of your artwork? I think it's simply to think about what we do with our material legacy. You know, what are we leaving behind? Are we leaving behind this product that is just filling up the ocean and landfills and spaces that other creatures live in, you know, all around the world? Why do we need to have it? It's not critical. We have plenty of other options that we can use. And I think, you know, when we start to see this material in its true form, I think that you can see that it's it's really a kind of a dark matter. It is not what it seems to be. Mm. You know, for that reason, I think it does have that power I was talking about before. And therefore, it's it takes that power into the social realm and it communicates something. And what it's communicating is that this is not without consequence. And so let's think about this. Mm. I think that perhaps the most striking piece of yours that I have seen to convey that shock and sense of place 
is the disposable lighters that you collected from the ocean that when put together look like this lovely rainbow sculpture, but that's not what it is. Yeah, and you know, the story's even a little bit more intense than that because not only did those lighters come out of the ocean, but they came out of the ocean by a mother or father albatross and they were fed to the chicks. Oh. Yes, and that's the real tragedy of it. They are literally found in the nests of albatross on Midway. And that means that this amazing ancient creature who's been flying up to the Arctic Circle, you know, for billions of years is now succumbing to this trinket, you know, and and that's another thing that we don't really need. We do not need to have disposable lighters. You can have a refillable lighter or you can use matches. (laughs) Or don't smoke. Yes, (laughs) there's a lot of options. Artist and environmental activist Pam Longobardi. More information about her book, Ocean Gleaning, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series, Speaking of Music, where we hear from local musicians in their own words. Today, featuring the band Starbenders, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Aaron, and I play bass in Starbenders. Hi, my name is Kimmy Shelter, and I sing and play guitar in Starbenders. Our music can best be described as rock and roll, but with a few twists and turns down dark alleys. The way Starbenders came together involved so many accidents and coincidences that we kind of can't help but believe in a little bit of cosmic intent behind the whole thing. Kimmy and I always knew we were going to make music together, so when our previous band broke up, she called and pretty much declared that we were going to start our own newer, better, cooler thing. It absolutely wasn't a question, and I was in before she even called. We found Chris playing guitar at a house show that we almost didn't go to. And when we decided to try putting up an ad on Craigslist to find a drummer, we found Emily's ad before we had a chance to make our own. So with that many stars aligning, you got no choice but to have at least a little faith in what you're doing. Well, three quarters of us were born here, and honestly, to me, it's a point of pride. 
I think there's a creative shamelessness that's always been on full display in Atlanta, and it's a defining feature of the city and the art that grows out of it. Because there are a lot of artists, not just from here, but also the surrounding state, who either created a genre or became hallmarks of it. And growing up here, coming up in the music scene here, it's impossible to not be inspired by that or for it to not rub off on you. And I'm grateful for our music to be steeped in that tradition of unrestricted expression, to have that gift of inspiration. We always take a little bit of this place with us when we go on the road, and we're always happy to see that skyline in the distance as we come home. Seven White Horses is about good versus evil, the tug of war that happens when we're ready for something better, something more. I was listening to a lot of Willie Nelson and Red Hot Chili Peppers during this time, so that definitely was infused into the main riff and the verses. I had this unusual vision of blood being injected into another liquid, the two mediums running into one another like white horses riding into the storm. We never traveled growing up, so I had a very romantic view of California. I saw it as a lot of people have seen it, the place of possibilities, the chorus sings, California's calling, but you'll never go, meaning your dreams are calling, but you're choosing to stay sick, to stay in the life that's hurting you. Cover Me was one of the first songs I wrote once we signed to Sumerian. I remember playing the demo for Emily at the bar at LAX and feeling very vulnerable. It was one of those transmutational songs in our career. The sentiment lies with those cherished moments in which we feel the magic of love. I've always craved to belong to something, to feel like a part of something. This band has given all of us that family we can claim. Knowing that we have each other's backs with music at the foundation is something we hope to never take for granted. We'll be doing a North American tour with Palais Royale and Mod Sun this fall, the Atlanta date for which is September 21st at Buckhead Theater. In the meantime, you can check out our latest single, If You Need It, on any and all streaming platforms. Kimmy Shelter, and Aaron Lacine from the band Starbenders. More information about Starbenders and our series, Speaking of Music, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, this weekend, you can meet some of your favorite authors, screenwriters, film and TV stars 
at the Black Writers Weekend Festival and Conference. The Lit Crawl allows guests to connect with nationally known authors and artists at six different locations in Atlanta. You can also purchase a ticket for the opportunity to pitch your book or film to publishers or producers. There will also be interactive story-building workshops and master classes. More information about live panel discussions and access to the events is available at blackwritersweekend.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Diana Settles and Sophie Whittemore share the DIY journey of the High-Low Gallery and Arts Collective. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.